podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Jones! Bowden! He's got it! England have won the World Cup by the barest of margins! Stokes flashes it away through the covers for four and England have won the match! Hello and welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket. Hope you're enjoying some cricket somewhere, whether you're at a county match, hopefully you're keeping as warm as possible, or watching the IPL on TV, or maybe even at the IPL. Uh, I know we've got some Indian listeners on this podcast, or maybe you're following the South Africa-Bangladesh series, or uh, indeed uh, perhaps getting down to the nets uh, and, and hopefully playing for your club side shortly. Anyway, we're going to talk about data today. We're not going to talk about individual matches, though it's great to see, firstly, Alistair Cook getting uh, 100 for Essex. It's one thing that's sort of almost inevitable uh, in a county season over the last 10 years. And also, I'd just like to say well done to Josh DeCaries as well for making a maiden 50 for Middlesex. Of course, he's Michael Atherton's son, though he takes his mother's surname. And there's quite a lot of uh, similarities, actually, in the way he plays to his dad, actually, uh, the way he likes to hit the ball square of the wicket and obviously likes to bat a long time as well. Missed out on making a first ever Atherton 100 at at the headquarters, at least uh, in first-class cricket. I know Atherton's made a, a one-day 100 for England against the West Indies, but he never made a first-class 100 at Lords. And Josh missed out by about 20, but I reckon he's uh, one to follow in the future. I'm sure he'll get there eventually. So, and as I say, we're not going to talk about individual county players today. Actually, we're going to talk about data. And the reason I I thought of this subject is I did an interview not that long ago with two real analysts, proper analysts. Billy Bean, the famous character from Moneyball, the movie and book, the main character who was actually played by Brad Pitt in the film, a former baseball player who is now a, a data analyst and general manager of the Oakland A's in the uh, Major League Baseball competition and has been starting to get interested in cricket. And also Nathan Lehman, who of course is England's premier analyst and was the man in a way who pioneered the use of data in cricket way back probably about 12, 13 years ago. And the reason why I thought about uh, introducing this interview today actually was because Nathan was quite prominent Last week at an event I attended, the Cricket Society and MCC Book of the Year Award at Lords, uh, which was last Tuesday, and some great nominations on the shortlist, including my old cricketer colleague James Coyne and Tim Abraham's book about cricket in South America, Evita Burned Down Our Pavilion, and Felix White's book, uh, a sort of book about following England through the 80s and 90s, quite an emotional roller coaster story by. Felix, who of course is one of the three people who presents the Tailenders podcast. I hope I'll get on that at some point, actually. It's obviously a brilliant product. And also, Nathan Lehman and Ben Jones's book was in the shortlist, Hitting Against the Spin, How Cricket Really Works. And Ben Jones, of course, comes from CrickViz. I've worked with him a lot, actually, on cricket behind the scenes. A very sharp analyst on the game. Nathan's work we've all seen, and he at the moment is out in India, working with the Kolkata Knight Riders. By the way, the winner in the end of the Cricket Society and MCC Book of the Year was David Woodhouse's Who Only Cricket Know, 
Len Hutton's men in the West Indies 1953-54. Great character, David Woodhouse, a brilliant journalist, a very funny man as well. And that book has been extensively researched and is full of fascinating insights into a very controversial tour when Len Hutton took uh, an MCC stroke England team to the West Indies in 1953-4. So well done to David Woodhouse. Uh, Honourable runners-up for the others. Nathan Lehman and Ben Jones's book, Hitting Against the Spin, How Cricket Really Works, is also a fascinating read. So this interview that I did with Billy Bean and Nathan Lehman was to sort of try and put some mathematical minds together and find out how they could be used to greater effect in cricket. And Billy Bean's involvement is is partly because he's now tied up with Redbird Capital Partners, who are an investment company that have invested in a lot of sports and are starting to get involved in investing in cricket as well. So he's got a, a sort of vested interest in analysing cricket and using data to try and get more out of players and find players who are undervalued. And the first thing I, I said to him was, I suppose, really, he kick-started the whole data revolution in sport himself with his work in baseball. Yeah, well, it, it, make a correction. You know, Nathan sort of falls under the uh, the umbrella of being an analyst. So what I like to say is I hire really smart people to make the sausage, and I sell the sausage. And one of the uh, the advantages I had when I first started was I was an ex-player. And, you know, sport is very uh, incestuous. Uh, it's very much, you sort of hire your own, you played, you, whatever sport you are, you played, and you ultimately went on to manage it. You sort of made the selections, and that was sort of the route. And what data did and the use of data did was it created transparency and decision making because every sport and every business has these sort of buzzwords and these sort of uh, ambiguous ways of uh, saying things they are really hard to prove. And when you use data, particularly when you're talking about evaluating player performance in any sport, it sort of forces you to prove what you're saying. And with that and the use of data sort of really opened the doors for some really, really bright people, guys like Nathan and in baseball, which uh, I like to say we have some, I think baseball in, in, this, in, in the States is one of the smartest in, uh, businesses in the entire world, um, mainly because uh, you know, we're looking for the same skill sets with the A's that, that Google or Goldman Sachs are looking for. And we're competing for those people because we need, we need sort of math and science skills. Uh, we need people who can model, right? Because we use this data and basically, again, turn it into sausage, so to speak. And the advantage you have in sport is that uh, young people usually, I mean, have some awareness or some passion for sports in many cases, and they'll come work for their favorite sports team, very bright people, for 20 cents on the dollar, and then go back and work for sort of, you know, Wall Street Bank later on. And it was all this intellectual capital that for 150 years in baseball, we were ignoring. And when data came in, it really expanded and opened up a really the human talent pool. To me, that's the real change. Data and information's always been out there and it's certainly been accelerated by the virtue by virtue of technology. But it's now the people, guys like Nathan, who are actually managing this data is really what's changed the sport, at least for baseball, at least. I think it's probably the, the truth for cricket as well. But but Nathan, in a way, I, I suppose it's not only about people like you being able to understand the data and apply it, but it's also about the players taking it on board as well. And you talk about, in your various uh, writings and so on, you talk about the importance of especially captains and coaches being um, mathematical thinking people, people who think in a probabilistic way. Is that fair? It's definitely a, 
a big advantage to work with with a captain or a coach who, who backgrounds are often um, ones who who take most naturally to that um, probabilistic um, view of the world. Um, but just to pick up on on something that Billy said, I think one of the one of the nice things about data is it democratizes opinion, it democratizes information. So you know, sport has always run on a sort of medieval guild system where there's this received wisdom. And the only way to learn anything is to gather, gather together a group of the, the people who have played the game at the highest level and, and ask them and, and take their sort of collective opinion. And now valuable though that process is, and that, that process can, can tell you a lot. And there's a, a lot of insight from guys who've got decades of experience within a sport. You can also check and challenge it now with with actual hard facts, which sometimes back it up and sometimes sort of knock it back. Simon, I want to make sure Nathan knows de democratizing opinion. That's that's actually well said. And uh, I've always again said data creates transparency in decision making, but I like the way you say it better. So I'm going to uh, if, if if you see that quote, I'll, I'll make sure I footnote you because it's exactly I think that's well said. Excellent. Well, you're welcome to it. And I'm going to put Billy Bean sitting my quotes on my CV now. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's look at data in, in a bit more detail. Um, can it can it really uh, evaluate talent or is talent something distinct in that talent is talent and ability can be um, you know, affected by temperament and by form and by mental health and so on. So is data really that reliable, Billy? Well, I guess, it, I mean, to me, data is just facts. It has no opinions. It has no bias. And, uh, and so everyone, you know, the thing about it is, is this is, you know, I think most people are sort of emotional animals and they always default to that emotional state. And, you know, there's that small group of people like Warren Buffett is one of my favorites, the investor, who when things, you know, listen, everybody in today's world is a data guy, right? They're a data guy until it doesn't back up their opinion. That's <laughs> what I always say, is that, uh, it, it, and, and it's, and it's, and really to me, the, the data arbitrage is when you've got 10 smart guys in the room and maybe 10 guys who've been involved in cricket for 40 years, they're the greatest players, the greatest managers. And when 10 guys see one thing and the data tells you the other thing, tells you something else, that's the arbitrage. Data is there to sort of strip the emotion out of your decision making, and it's just a fact. Uh, and one of the things I always like you hear, it particularly in, in European football, you hear it in American sports too, is the idea of chemistry, measuring chemistry, measuring heart. You know, particularly in so uh, football, soccer, you'll hear it like, ah, well, that doesn't measure this guy's heart. Well, I don't. What, what the heart will ultimately translate to the data and the performance on the field. So if 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 the heart has any impact on what's going on, the data will show it. As long as you're myopic and linear and looking at the data, when you start bringing in sort of uh, emotions, and you know, because we all have a biases, we see things different. We see things. You know, two people will see one thing. If you're rooting for Manchester United, you see a goal one way. If you're rooting for Arsenal and they're playing them, you see that goal another way. You have a different reaction. The thing too is again, and what data does is capture everything. Is I remember sitting on a panel years ago with a very famous manager of a sport, and they were talking about data. And, and, and the response was, he goes, and this was early, early days of Moneyball, and they said, well, I trust my eyes. And I'm thinking, well, that's true. Your eyes, first of all, I've seen magicians pull rabbits from their hats, and I guarantee you that rabbit did not grow up in that hat. And so, uh, 
trusting the eyes is what it doesn't also take into account is all the other events that are going around that have some impact on what's going to happen next. And essentially all data is trying to help you do is predict, predict what's going to happen next. Similar to gambling. That's why in, what's interesting in, the, in Europe, some of the best analysts or the, the analysts working for teams now started in the gambling industry. And now they're going to teams. In the States, because gambling's not nearly as prevalent and, and illegal and really was kind of kept at an arm's length from all the sports, what's happened now is this team started with the analysts and will be interesting over the next 10 years as gambling becomes part of the American culture is how those analysts from teams now go into gambling. So the reverse will be too. But again, the, you know, people will tell you it's everything in the word probabilistic was used here is that everything's about basically creating the best probability. You know, in some sense, I said this 20 years ago, an actuary would do a better job of managing a pro, a pro sports team than, than most of us because he's dealing with mathematics and probability and predict, you know, like he sets insurance rates. So anyways, I sort of digress there a little bit. Well, well, I mean, mathematics and, and in a way, gambling, I suppose, Nathan, is where you come in. Um, I didn't I didn't mean to sound make that sound rude, but uh, you like prediction and, and you've applied predictive models to all sorts of scenarios, right? Yes. So, I mean, just to come back to the talent point, I mean, I, I've always found everyone who says the word talent means it to, takes it to mean something slightly different. So you're, you're chasing this chimera. So whether data can predict talent or not is, is a moot point. Data can predict performance and that's the bit we're actually interested in if it's a if it's a great performance by a, a non-talented bloke then so be it um but in terms of prediction and the predictive capability of data for us as a sport i think baseball is ahead of us but for in cricket as a sport that's where we that that's the push that we're making at the moment so we're trying to turn from being sort of objective historians so people who who delineate exactly what happened in the past and break it down in lots of different ways and assume that that will be predictive of the future to we're actually now starting to, um, to use the sort of techniques and, and, uh, and computing power that allows us to, to turn past data into accurate predictions of what will happen in the future. Uh, but we're always fighting against the pitch in cricket because, you know, batting in Chennai and batting in Perth, they're almost different sports. So the, the conditions are, have such a, a powerful effect on, um, on the shape of the game and, and what will be effective. It, it's, it, it always tips us towards art and away from science. You're now working for the Kolkata Knight Riders in the IPL. Um, is T20 almost the sort of perfect uh, space for somebody like you who... Uh, because it's more, it's almost a, a, the, an extension or a, a, a broad mathematical equation. Every over, even every ball, maths and calculations are prevalent. Yeah, and uh, there's there's more variety in the sport, which I think lends itself to analytics. Um, you know, in Test cricket, there's only so many different ways to say top of off. Um, but also, the the game is evolving, so you, you've got a sport that if you think of t20 as its own sport it was only invented in 2003 it's only been taken seriously since 2009 and and you had in 2009 you had cricketers who'd grown up playing a different sport they'd grown up playing red ball cricket and 50 over cricket 
and they brought those techniques and tactics across to this new game. And you're only now starting to get a sort of fully evolved version of T20 cricket where you've got cricketers who, who've played T20 cricket throughout their professional lives. Um, and so the, the game is evolving at a, probably a faster rate than most sports ever do. And therefore that adds to the impact that you can have as an analyst because you, you can, you can it's easy, if, the, if the thinking is taking a while to catch up to the, the structure of the sport, then you've got a, a bigger advantage than you can normally grab in a, in a sport, I think. Billy, you, you, I know you're sort of not um, a cricket aficionado yet, though I'm sure you'll become one. Um, can you just share, you know, one or two of the, the techniques and the systems that you've used over the years that have been the most successful? Uh, from a baseball standpoint, Simon? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I think what's interesting is well, one of the reasons I became interested in cricket because of the parallels with baseball, especially with T20, you know, uh, is, and so a lot of the things that we're doing, I think eventually, and again, I say this humbly, one of the reasons I think there's an advantage in the States with baseball is that we basically had a 20 year head start. And the other thing is, and maybe I can borrow this term again from Nathan, is we've democratized the collection of data too. In other words, we've hardwired Major League Baseball, it's hardwired all the, the stadiums to the point. And actually that was one of the equalizers for us, which hurt us. One of the advantages we had was we understood the value of collecting data 20 years ago. And we knew it's some. We didn't know what we were going to do with it when we started. But if we hired a bunch of smart guys, and Nathan will tell you, giving them a bunch of data and a lot of information, they'll figure out something to do with it. And then what happened in Major League Baseball? Probably it's been almost a decade now. Is when all the stadiums were sort of hardwired, and we were able to measure literally everything: the, the spin rate on a baseball, uh, I mean, the angle, launch angles, wind patterns, everything. I mean, we everything that you could measure in a Major League Stadium. We now had the technology to do it. And we gave it to all the major league teams, basically gave it out each night in data dumps every single night and waiting for these data dumps are these really, really bright future PhDs or current PhD students from Stanford and MIT who are waiting for this data to dump to create the models that Nathan's talking about. That's the advantage I think baseball has right now above everybody else. I think one of the challenges you have in cricket, now correct me if I'm wrong here, Nathan, is for instance, in India, you don't quite have the, you're not to the point where the whole, every stadium is hardwired, all the data is going out to teams. So, which actually quite frankly, gives the advantage to the team that values data and finds a way to collect it in a more crude way. When you, again, I love the word, democratize it. Uh, it at that point, then the big teams hire, hire the smart guy, the more, hire more smart guys than the other smaller teams. And they have the advantage right now, the team that goes in there and understands the value of data and can collect it, independent of every other club has a huge advantage. But at some point, uh, uh, again, the difference, and that's to me the gap with cricket, because once you have the data and you hire these smart guys, they can, there's so many uses for us. It, and again, I, I say this humbly is uh, I feel proud of the fact that we were sort of one of the first ones out of the gate, but just like any business, there's other people that take it to the next level. And there's certainly baseball teams. We took it from a player evaluation and, and saying, listen, players are, are, are misvalued. We're not properly valuing the right skill sets and this data will tell us how. And then you had teams who were able to turn it into what, I think some of what Nathan's doing now is, uh, is how does it help the player's performance, right? right? At first, we didn't care about what the players thought. We just said, you're undervalued, you're overvalued. We think you're worth this, we think you're that. And we had a huge, uh, there was a, a huge inefficiency in the market that we could exploit. 
now teams like the Dodgers and the Tampa Bay Rays have now taken this information and been able to uh, communicate it to the players and have it have it have an impact on a game by game basis, right? And and again, the gap in baseball versus I think it starts with the data, and 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 I'm sure Nathan would agree is the only limits that that really smart people working for sports teams now have is the data you give them a lot of data and you give them more data they're going to create better and more predictive models and that's again what we're all trying to do and again the thing with crick one of the first things i noticed with crick and i'll i'll get off here for a sec is that the, the, the not only is the game somewhat similar i mean it's you know very similar in so many ways the skill sets are the same uh the, it's it's interesting the personalities are the same too as i watched you know the, the the many netflix shows and things like that when i see the locker room of a cricket we call it the locker room and but when i see the uh, the locker room of a cricket team and i hear the banter it's exactly the same as a baseball team you just could take these these young men from england and australia and new zealand or south africa and you put them in in the states and they would fit right in the personalities and the way they think about the game is very, very similar, which is why I think at some point you're really going to see a commingling of minds with cricket and baseball, because we essentially are looking for the same outcome. I think one of the things when I look at it from a, a layman's eyes, when I watch cricket is, you know, whether or not sort of like, for instance, there's a great paper that's like stealing signs, you know, predicting what a bowler is going to throw to a batsman, you know, through biomechanics, you know. I mean, there's guy tip pitches. There's things human beings will do when they're going to do something that will tip. I mean, if, if stuff like that's done in cricket, the other thing is really sort of uh, the, the the defensive positioning. How much science is put in the defensive positioning? You know, we've gotten to the point in baseball where we have created shifts in baseball in the last five years that basically have revolutionized the game, and they were available to everybody for 150 years. But data had told us we were putting fielders in the wrong spot, and now the game has completely changed as a result of this. And my, my what I say to that is that really smart guys basically told everybody else, you guys have been really dumb for 150 years. This is what you should have been doing. And it's been so dramatic on its impact just by the positioning that they're now thinking of changing the rules because it's had such a huge impact. Again, that opportunity was there because we basically did the same thing over and over again. I, again, the gap between cricket and baseball, I think when I say when I say gap, I just think again, the gap is only because the data that uh, Nathan may have available to him that we that he does or does not, and we have in the States. And the, the data is the only limited thing when cricket again, especially in IPL is able to, to hardwire all these stadiums and dump it out to all these teams, that's when you're going to see the big advances. So, so Nathan, Billy mentioned fielding there and fielding in baseball. Is that an area that perhaps is untapped data-wise in cricket? Uh, yes and no. I mean, just because of the, the structure of the game, there's, there's always been a lot more focus on fielding positions and, and moving fielders for different batsmen and different bowlers and so that is that's but that's always been a part of the the game so that introduction of, of of moving your fielders around into different positions for different scenarios and that you know that's that's not that might be new in, in baseball but just because of the history of the game isn't in cricket it's interesting to um so as Billy mentioned, there's the sort of there's there's two halves to the to the use of of data in sport. What one is um, a sort of economical, econ sorry economics use of that undervaluing assets, um, sorry finding undervalued assets in a marketplace, um, and because I 
started with England, um, that side of things was never really available to me. So we didn't operate in the marketplace. We were allowed to pick who we wanted. And if we were short of fast bowlers, we couldn't go and buy Dale Stain off South Africa. Um, there's a sort of equivalent in terms of we have a limited number of um, caps, we have a limited number of appearances uh, to, to invest in players and invest in, in developing players, et cetera. So there's, there's a sort of analogous argument there, but it, it's, it has nothing of the power that you have in a, uh, in a commercial sport where you can buy and sell players. So, so the, the, the part we always focused on was, was the performance side of things um, because that was where we could use the data. Um, and that's, a, that's the other reason that T20 cricket has caused this explosion of, of the use of um, data in cricket because most T20 cricket is played in commercial leagues where you buy and sell players and therefore the, the valuing of, of players is much more important. Because if, if you ask 10 good judges who should be in England's 15-man squad for the World Cup, you would get the same 12 names and then they would differ over the last three. But if you ask 10 good judges who, who are the best 10 value players or the best 15 value players in the IPL auction, you'll get a completely different set of, set of answers. And, and, and that's where there's, there's a, a huge um, scope for the use of data that we, that we haven't had in cricket before the introduction of T20 cricket. And I suppose, Billy, um, you may be um, rubbing your hands, salivating at the prospect of getting involved in a cricket auction yourself, given, you know, you made your name finding players who were undervalued or identifying players who were overvalued. Um, are you going to get into that uh, in the IPL? Listen, in any business, properly pricing the assets is the most important thing. It's, you know, like the, one of the reasons I became interested in European football, when I make a trade in baseball, if I value a player at a certain level, and another team doesn't, but to transact, I have to get a bilateral negotiation. I have to get you to agree to trade me that player. One of the great things about European football is I basically just have to value that player. Theoretically, this is not that simple, $1 more than my competitors. And if I've got a better way to evaluate players, there's a huge opportunity. One of the teams, again, not to digress into another sport, but you talked about gambling, but if you look at the success of Brentford Football Club and you look at the success of Brighton as well, two, two owners who came from the gambling. I mean, you know, and I am pretty familiar with some of their, you know, Michelin as well, which is what uh, they're, they're making decisions based on this data and information. They're pricing it now, you know, they're, they're pricing it properly at the outset, but then they're also turning on you know, football. The other thing you can do is turn it into a more valuable asset by the sell on. But again, pricing, and I say I use that respectfully, assets being the players and the player's talent. That is the most important thing in any sport is properly pricing. And the great thing you have in a cricket auction is that you you know you basically have a pool of money. To, you know, based most people have, you have a pool of money, and how you allocate that, you can actually I, again. I think that uh, there's a real opportunity to exploit some things, and that's where the mathematicians come in, and the and the uh, and the gambling guys, and the, and the, the guys who run Monte Carlo, Carlo simulations when they do things. And so uh, again, that to your point, Simon, yeah, I find that. Uh, fascinating potentially down the road what, what, nathan what happens when data doesn't work when you've made these predictions and you've uh, persuaded your captain or coach to, to buy into them or the player and then it falls flat what what happens then how do you know it didn't work well if you think, well, well you didn't have think, the outcome that you suggested you'd get but that's why you have to think probabilistically so you you, you know you you won't ever say 
Arsenal will win this match because because that's never the case in in any real world scenario. Um, so actually, one of the problems one of the problems with using data in sport is it, it's very hard to know when you're getting it right and when or if you're getting it wrong. Um, so the I think you know. The, the only thing you can do is try and try and remain behind the veil of ignorance. So whenever you evaluate the choices that were made going into a game, you only use the information that you had going into the game. There's a fantastic Mike Brearley quote where he says, um, after before any cricket match, no one knows what the result's going to be. After the match, ev the, the result looks not only inevitable, but morally appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lovely thing, you know. We we see the losing team as having made obvious mistakes uh, to the point where sometimes that the, they seem all, almost morally culpable. Um, but that's the, all that is in our head. They made perfectly decent decisions going into a game that they didn't know the eventualities of. You, you know, the times test players pick a spinner who then doesn't bowl looks ridiculous coming out of the game. But going into the game, you don't know how the match is going to pan out and you don't know what the pitch is going to do on days two and three. So if you if you try and evaluate how you've used your, the decisions you've made and how, you, how you've used your data, that's a very valuable process to do and it's an important thing to do, but you have to remain behind that veil of ignorance, knowing only what you knew going in. So the thing I, I, I'll often, I'll often say, uh, so, you know, Owen Morgan is the guy that I work most closely with most of the time. And the conversation we often have um, after a game is, that was probably wrong. So we probably got this wrong, but I don't know how we could have got to that decision going in. Does that make sense? Well, is, so is that the beauty of sport? Been in the power is, that, play. is that the beauty of sport though, in a way that it, it is unpredictable? Yeah, you, 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 you're playing a different, you're playing a different course every time you step onto the tee. So, but it's that thing, you know, we bowled too much spin in the power play today, but how could we have got to that decision knowing what we knew without knowing how the pitch was going to play? And sometimes you can't. And you just say, mm. we, we called it right and, and we got done by circumstance. Mm. So um, you you mentioned Owen Morgan there and you, you've got a very close relationship with him, obviously to the extent where... Uh, you now quite frequently hold up numbers or symbols to uh, convey ideas onto the pitch. Is that something you think is going to happen more? And, you know, do you find it a bit frustrating in a way that it's not sort of more accepted that, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of rather clandestine running out of messages is sort of almost allowed and the, 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 the flashing up of sync signals or numbers or whatever it sort of is almost frowned on. Do you find that frustrating? And do you think that'll change? A little bit frustrating, but but entirely also entirely predictable. So, I mean, take the IPL for an example. There are two breaks where the, the entire coaching staff walks out onto the field and talks to either the batting or the bowling side. So that happens four times in every game. Yeah, me holding up a three is considered, you know, <laughs> too much interference in what's going on in the middle. Um, you know, it, it is what it is. If you look at the views of ex-players, they split almost entirely perfectly. The commentators don't like it. The coaches love it.
And, and how is that going to evolve, you think? Um, how, how is, is that going to change over time? You're going to see more communication between off the field and on the field? I hope so, because it'll mean that I stand out less but um, and get a bit less airtime. But um, no, it, it, I think it will, because you're going to have more and more special. It, it's, it's essentially a specialism. So it's someone who spends all week preparing one aspect of the game and then spends the game thinking only about that aspect. And that for the captain who has to think about 20 things simultaneously, having a reliable resource in one area then becomes valuable. So the, the, the analogy I use is, um, is um, when Gary Kasparov lost to Deep Blue, um, around the, the, the sort of the start of the century, then it looked like from from now on the best um, the best chess players in the world were all going to be computers. That you know, computers would would dominate the playing of chess, but that's not the case at the moment. The, the best chess players in the world are not computers. So what Kasparov did was he started a competition called freestyle chess, and in freestyle chess you play as a team. So you can, your team can be a computer or it can be a group of computers. It can be a human or it can be a group of humans, or it can be a combination of the two. And actually the strongest chess players in the world are now teams of humans and computers. And humans are very good at the strategic part of chess. Computers are very good at the tactical part of chess. And if you combine the strengths of both, you get a, a cyborg <laughs> that can beat either human chess players or computer chess players. And, that, and that's what we're trying to do. There are elements of the game in cricket that we can model more accurately using the laptop than we can relying on our judgment. And we can do that live. And so feeding that information into Owen Morgan's cricket brain makes a cyborg captain that is stronger than either the laptop on its own or him on his own. Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed uh, that interview. Some fascinating insights there from both Nathan Lehman and, of course, Billy Bean. And I think there's plenty more where that came from. Their influence on the game is going to be greater and greater as time goes on. And look out for Nathan Lehman and Ben Jones's book, Hitting Against the Spin, How Cricket Really Works. Okay, well, good luck to all your counties or IPL franchises in the next few days. Uh, I'll be watching and listening. And we'll be back. Simon actually is at the moment away touring himself, going around America with his family. But after Easter, he'll be back and we'll be back too with some more guests and thoughts on the game we love. And by the way, if you want to know more on these kinds of subjects, data, analysis, the business of cricket as well, uh, I'm launching a website in the next few days, theanalyst.net. So look out for some content on there. Thanks for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network.